Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to Season 2 of the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect. And I still can't believe that we are on season two and... This gentleman was referred to me by a fellow colleague and also friend, Dr. Chris Stout. And my guest today is Michael F. Shine. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He's the founder and president of Microfame Media, which is a marketing agency that specializes in making idea-based companies famous in their fields. Some of his clients have included eBay, the University of Pennsylvania, the University of California, Irvine, LinkedIn, Citrix, the list goes on and on. Michael's writing appears frequently in Fortune, Forbes, Psychology Today, and Huffington Post. He's also an international speaker spanning the globe, and he is living in New York State, and I am so excited to have you on the show. So, Michael F. Shine, welcome. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me, Deb. Well, Dr. Chris, you know, he's he's a he's a friend and a colleague, and when he says, you should get this guy on your podcast, that, that does not fall on to deaf ears. So, <laughs> happy to have you. I can't believe we're already on season two, and I just want to dive into... A really exciting interview. So if you're ready, I am ready. I am ready. Your book. Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. Uh oh. Let's start with <laughs> let's let's start with the name. You titled your book The Hype Handbook Colon Twelve Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists self-promoters, cult leaders, mischief makers, and boundary breakers. Like if that doesn't want to grab you to get into a chair with a nice cup of coffee and a blanket. <laughs> so tell us the backstory of the development of the book, where this title came from, and just share with our listeners your story behind this. Turns out I'm just a very evil man who wants to spread discord wherever I go. Um, no, so <laughs> quite the opposite. I, I, um, you know, I, I'm, I own a business now and I love owning a business. I own a marketing agency, as you discussed, but I never wanted to do that. that I, I never wanted to own a business. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I, I thought that sounded so boring. I really saw myself as an artiste, you know, I, I, uh, I wrote fiction. I, I had, I've written fiction in one form or another since I was a, a little kid, you know, since I could read basically. And then I got into music um, and I liked really theatrical sort of punk rock music so that there was a story behind it, you know, like David Bowie and, and, and stuff like that and Devo and, and the Misfits. And so um, I, I uh, left college and told my parents at graduation dinner, as they love to tell everybody, 
that I was going to go to New York and start a band. And, and, and I don't know, that was not received well. And um, however, that's what I did. And, and it was particularly not received well because I wasn't a particularly good singer or guitar player. I mean, I think I wrote pretty good songs, but I, I got together with some guys who were better than me at that stuff. And my whole thing was that I was sort of the hype man, you know, I, I was the front man, but also I would think of all these ideas to, to be as over the top as possible to attract attention. And we used that word. We, we called it hype. I mean, I didn't know what marketing was, but to me, the hype and the art were one in the same. It wasn't like we were creating music and then figuring out how to market it. It was all sort of part of the same fun thing. So like when we first started the band, and this is something I couldn't get away with now and probably shouldn't have then, but we put up posters all over lower Manhattan that said Dave Matthews must die because that was a hippie band that we didn't like. And that got a lot of attention. And um, at one point we talked our way on to Showtime at the Apollo, the TV show, knowing full well that we would be booed off, you know, and um, we had a song called this again, we were a little bit offensive, but we had a song called Ash Wednesday. And um, I would dress like a nun, you know, uh, during the song. So we would do this stuff and, and we got a lot of attention. I mean, even though we didn't ultimately make it, quote unquote, um, there was a there's a, a club called Arlene's Grocery in New York, which in the early 2000s, which is when we were playing, was kind of at the hub of this scene that was very hot. You know, the Strokes came from there and Interpol and these bands that got famous. And we used to sell it out pretty regularly and we had a residency there. So uh, long story short, I mean, when we finally did break up, I got a corporate job. I mean, I fell into it. It you know, was supposed to be something else. It was supposed to be an entertainment company and they changed directions. And before I knew it, I was in this corporate job and I, I started to get used to the money and I started to do well there. And um, yeah, I mean, it, I had thought it would be a year or two, but I was there for eight years and I, I really became a corporate guy. It happened slowly, you know, but um, and there's nothing to be ashamed of with that other than the fact that by year six, I felt like I had learned all I could learn and I was staying there out of fear and I was deeply unhappy. You know, there are worse problems to have, but, you know, in my egotism, I felt like I had been put on the earth to do something with my so-called talents and that this was not it. So I eventually got up the courage to leave and I became a corporate copywriter. I don't want to say corporate copywriter, like a marketing corp copywriter for, for corporations. And I figured because I had always been a good writer that I would just get clients um, and I didn't, you know, I had a year's worth of savings. I burned through it. I was extremely stressed out. I had an infant. I thought I had made a bad mistake, you know, and I was tr trying to market my business. I was trying to, I, I had become so corporate in my thinking that I was studying search engine optimization and landing pages and analytics. And, you know, I, it just wasn't working very well for me. It wasn't giving me a competitive advantage. So eventually, because I, I was reminded of my old interests, I was I was um, actually saw that old club, I, I walked by it. And I, I thought about what I used to do and how I used to be good at marketing when I didn't think of it as marketing. And, and, and I engaged in this sort of benevolent mischief. So I, I said, you know, I'm, I have nothing to lose, I'm going to take that approach with my business, I'm going to start being more like, you know, the old rock managers and, and even like 
I don't know, propaganda, I, I, propaganda artists and cult leaders, but for good. Hopefully I offer some value. And as long as I'm not lying to people or misleading them, maybe there's some psychology there. And it worked like a charm and I started to do really well. And so, um, yeah, that's been the basis of whatever success I've had. And then I just realized that so many bad people get this stuff naturally, but there's nothing inherently bad about the psychology, the psychological sort of strategies that I wanted to make that case that there's value in hype and to put the tools and strategies in the hands of, of, of the good guys, for lack of a better term. Now, let's let's talk about the word hype here, because, you know, the old cliche, fake it till you make it. I'd love for right. you to speak to that. But I want you to lean in a little bit more. I love the term that you use benevolent mischief. I love that. <laughs> Explain how you used hype to the greater good and what you did. And you did it and created this book. So fake it till you make it. Is that the cousin to being benevolent with your mischief and, and creating good hype? There's a lot in this question. I mean, there, there's a, a lot here. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I know full well that most people consider the word hype to be a negative thing. I mean, what, what it comes from hyperbole. I think most people think of it as when you don't have something good blowing a lot of smoke around it so that it looks better than it is. And I, I've decided to take the term back and, and define it a little bit more generally as any set of activities that gets people, large numbers of people sufficiently emotional to move in a certain direction. And I feel comfortable defining it that way because in hip hop, which is another form of music I like, no one would ever define hype as fake it till you make it. They would define there's a, you know, hype is a very positive thing, like the hype man. And the idea is, hey, we don't have the advantages that other people have. So we got to do whatever we need to do to draw attention to ourselves. We got to hype stuff up, you know? And, and, you know, right now we're all sort of outsiders, right? I mean, with the pandemic and with everything that's going on with the fact that you can't rely on keeping the same job for 30 years, we all need to become, we all need to hype our, 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 ourselves up to, to, to a certain point. So, you know, I guess, I forget the first part of the question. You were saying, how did I do it? So yeah, benevolent mischief. I mean, like I said, I've always been attracted to those businesses that weren't businesses and that marketing that wasn't marketing. So a lot of times, you know, we, we see these businesses that are that are trying to be quote unquote disruptive and quote unquote outside the box. And just by the fact that they use those terms, it's very clear that they aren't. They they they're doing you know, a version of something that's already being done. But if you look at, gosh, I don't know, the Blair Witch Project, the, the, the early rock bands, the, you know, Echo clothing line, these people who really didn't start out with a business mentality, they started out with, I want to create something great and get people to take part of it. They hyped it up versus marketed it. And they usually did so in this mischievous way that actually added color. So there, there's, there's ripping people off and no one likes that. 
but we all like a little bit of mischief. We all liked when the Blair Witch Project came out that they tried to fool us and pretend that it was a real video. You know, we all knew what was going on, but it was it, it added color. So I guess that's what I mean by benevolent mischief, where everyone's sort of in on the joke. Well, and what I love, if we look at it in the context of leadership, I think leadership and hype and emotional agility all belong in the same sentence. I think we've exercised that well since COVID. I've been challenged very much since the start of the, the podcast and the pandemic about heart-centered leadership. It's not new. I am not outside of the box. What I'm doing is attaching the positive hype mixing in a little emotional agility and what is hype hype is inviting people to join you in your vision and allow them to feel like they belong to it to to right to the best hype artists create community you know yeah look at gary and and look at the start of your book it's community but it's even beyond when people talk community now it's sometimes a very milk toast version of community. It's this kind of like, oh, we'll all do networking meetings or join the Reddit room that, you know, your Facebook channel. I'm talking about transcendence. I mean, if you look at like deadheads or members of a new religious movement or, or unfortunately members of certain po- new political movements, people are, are transported beyond themselves. They feel like they're part of something bigger and 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 in in the worst extremes to the extent that even if they die that's okay because the movement will live on they identify more strongly to that movement so i'm not saying to create that that's sort of sinister but what are the strategies that are so powerful that let people subsume their identity into a larger vision that's worth learning from Well, it's worth learning from, and it brings me to the question that will always have permanent residence in this podcast. When you look back at your trajectory of your career and your life and fostering your own leadership to follow your heart, share with us what imperfections you've packed up along the way that have presence in your leadership. It's funny. Um, I, I guess I'm a leader in that I own a business and that people follow what I have to say to a certain extent. But I always worried that I wasn't a leader. So I, I know, you know, when we, in all this kind of business literature and, 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 you know, there's so much talk about leadership, that's the word, right? And, and that's important. It's important to be a leader. But what I always thought that that meant was that you were the person who everyone, you know, you're in your friend group and everyone, hey, we're doing this, you know, and everyone came along with you or, or you had a command and a presence that got people to follow you or you were good at yelling at people and intimidating them, at, you know, at the further extreme. And I just never saw myself that way. And, and to a fault, because I kind of looked up to people who were these kind of command and control business leaders and, and things like that. And I just I don't have that personality. And for many years, I really thought that was a fault. You know, I mean, I thought that that was something, maybe that was part of why I never wanted to own a business. Because as an artist, you can sit in your room and sort of do it on your own. What I realized, though, in, in reassessing this is that 
I've always been a leader in that I've always been the guy who introduced new ideas and that people followed. So I remember going to talk about music again. I, I went away one summer when I was 12 years old and I had this older cousin. This was in probably like 1990. And I went away to New Jersey. I'd lived in Miami growing up. And my cousin introduced me to this band, The Dead Milkmen, which was this weird punk band. And this was the time when like, I don't know, like, gosh, I don't know, like hair metal and like, stuff like that was big and I came back to school and I was like you got to hear this stuff it's crazy and before long like tons of kids in the school were like into this kind of music and into the dead milkman and I didn't command them to listen to it so I've sort of loosened my grip on leadership and made it more about like um if, if I can kind of get excited about things and present new ideas to people I'm pretty good at getting them to follow these ideas, but I guess the imperfection is, yeah, I'm not a command and control kind of guy. If anything, I'm uncomfortable with that sort of leadership. And I think it's good to be that kind of leader. I think having some kind of authority is a useful thing, but, um, you know, I have something in my book where I say that people who turn themselves into what I call a magus, a larger than life figure that people are attracted to, they often turn their weaknesses and insecurities into strengths. So they find the strength wrapped in their weakness or insecurity. So like I give the example of how Andy Warhol was pathologically shy. He probably had social anxiety disorder. And so when he became a famous artist and the press would ask him, you know, why do you paint soup cans? He would say in a very quiet voice, I like soup. And that could have just been him being shy, but the way he did it, it made him this enigmatic figure that everyone wanted to hang on every word. So I hope I've done some of that with the way I lead, turned my insecurity into a strength. Well, and I would describe it as heart-centered leadership in that you brought your imperfections, your vulnerability, everything, all your cards were put on the table because the leadership that you described as authoritarian it hasn't served well during COVID True. and the millennials are really pushing that out. They don't want managers. They want leaders and leaders who demonstrate imperfection and vulnerability and really lead from the helm with their own self-care and their own insecurities and inability to only share information that they have in a certain period of time, like we're living right. right now, it's still very much unprecedented. And oh, yeah. a lot of CEOs have their vision seven to 10 years out, but they didn't expect the onset of this, I'm going to call it the business acumen tsunami that they're experiencing. So they yep. only know what they know. You can only plan so much within crisis management. So if anything, I think you've self-described and owned and lived into a heart-centered model that I love talking about. So I want to I want to chime I, in on that if that's okay. Absolutely, not to interrupt, but like I, I think so. There's this great book called The Click Moment by Franz Johansson, and he talks about how he, he he uses like quantum mechanics to get a little heady for a minute, but he talks about how randomness is like the only sure thing in life and even if you try to plan for something that'll change the thing itself and make it more random so when you hear these five to seven year plans they almost always 
don't work. But what you'll often see is retroactively fitting what happened to the plan. So they'll make it seem like their strategy caused this great thing. But true breaks, and you can do that to, to maintain a business in, in like positive settings when things are going according to plan. You can't do anything new with a five to seven year plan, but you can keep something running. But true leadership is when is, is accounting for that randomness, accounting for the fact that things are going to happen and using turning that into to raw material to make something better, you know? Um, but so often we think that we can plan and control everything. And there's, you, you can plan and you can give yourself a better sh- shot. You can influence, but you really can't control anything because you can't predict the future. Well, unless you have, you know, some kind of uh, genetic psychic ability, I guess. And none of us do. None that of us we know do. Of, so, yeah. You know, you've said a couple times the word fault. And I think that shines through with the comments that you just gave. And to me, fault is growth and, and owning it because we don't have that crystal ball to predict the future. We can secure ourselves with our leadership and our self-awareness of who we are and how we lead. Right. But growth is in the equation and it's how you lead yourself and your team, your organization through the growth to come out of it and say, okay, what did we learn? So there's such positivity. And I love that you said, you know, outside the box, living outside the box, thinking outside the box. It's such an overused phrase. And to me, you had mentioned how you have led by owning your own path. So it's so neat when you enter in a conversation and kind of look back and reminisce on your own trajectory of the wins, the losses, the lessons. You know, my my Irish Nana used to say, people come into your life for a reason, a season or a lesson. And if you're really tuned in, you'll know what all three are. That's a great phrase. I like that. Doesn't it? But doesn't it work at any age, right? Yeah. So to me, when something doesn't go right, it's a good time to get quiet and gain clarity and go, okay, what, how do we pivot now? Which is really leadership at its best. Yeah. And I I think just as a um, human being, and this trait has accounted for whatever success I've had, but it also has accounted for whatever torment I've had in my life. I do have the tendency to want to control things while, while I'm good natured and easygoing, I think. You know, I, I also, I, I have a subconscious belief that if only I work hard enough and, and, and think hard enough, I can control outcomes. And someone said to me recently, uh, a very close friend and trusted advisor said to me, cause I was talking about, oh, I should have done this and I should have done that. And it would have turned out differently. And, and he said, you know, and it had to do with another person behaving in a certain way that would have benefited me. And and this person said, you know, Mike, you can influence things, but you cannot control anything. And there really is a difference. You literally, unless you're, you know, a dictator, a literal dictator, or, you know, I, I, I mean, what can you control? I mean, you literally, even if you are, people are going to sabotage you. So you can influence outcomes but ultimately people are going to do what they're going to do for reasons that you don't know. And 
things are going to happen how they happen. I had a whole plan for my business that did not include a worldwide pandemic. Surprise, surprise. I couldn't control that. None of us could. But you can maintain your influence. Right. That's, that's a powerful statement. I love that. You know, one of my goals for season two was to have a little bit of structure to my leadership questions and to just really embrace a quality conversation. And I love how this conversation has just ebbed and flowed. And I can yeah. see why Dr. Chris wanted <laughs> us to connect and I could talk to you all day. I'm going to switch to my, my fast fab four. And we want to know what's on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. Oh, well, thank you. So I'm going <laughs> to ask you quick four questions. First question, tell us something that we don't know about you. I grew up for the first nine years of my life in the home of a relative of Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, that's cool. I, I think there's a future blog post there if you haven't already done that. My, my parents used to always say that it was his sister. And then I went back and found out that they were wrong. And so I figured they were wrong about the whole thing. But then I found out it was like, there was a relative. It just wasn't his sister. It was like his sister's something, something, you know, but yeah. So that third, was cool. Third cousin once removed. <laughs> yeah. Something it. like that. But, but it was a, yeah. Relative Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Finish this sentence for me. Heart centered leadership is. Uh, trying to always exert influence and never control. Love it. Third question. What is the top? heart-centered leadership quality that you possess? I am that guy who people want to take under their wing. You know, um, I, I, I've had this track record of older and more influential and powerful people for no reason other than to help me, helping me. Um, I don't know exactly where that comes from, but it's been a pattern in my life. So I've sort of, you know, used that whenever I could. I love it. And my last question is, what's one thing that you want our listeners to remember about you from today's interview? That I'm the author of a book called The Hype Handbook, published by uh, McGraw-Hill, available on Amazon and in bookshops near you. No, I'm just kidding. That was my uh, little fake plug there. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I guess what, what I'd like people to take away in general is that I hope that a few people got offended by the fact that I wrote a book trying to get you to learn something from cult leaders and propaganda artists and some nefarious people. Because if you get offended, you might think about why I would do such a thing. And if you think about why I would do such a thing, you might think, is there some beneficial motive there? And, you know, I, I just find that when people question their assumptions, you know, I, especially in the political environment today, and I see this on the left and the right, it's like we belong to this tribe. And if you don't, if there are 99 talking points and platform points, if you believe in only 97 of them, you're a traitor, you know, and you're a fascist or a communist, depending on what side you're talking to. And I feel that if people would get better about questioning their assumptions in general, about what's good, what's bad, what's useful, what's not useful, 
we might have more productive conversations and move forward. So, so if I got you offended and you can't really figure out why, think about that. And you might decide you're still offended, but at least think about it deeply. Well, and I think what I liked, and I'm working my way through your book, thank you so much for sharing it with me. You decided that you were going to get silent and observe. And to me, your book is your eloquent writing on your observations and you tapped into the psychology and we learn the most when we're silent and when we observe. So it was a book that, you know, I started reading it and it grabbed me right away. And I thought, I like where he's going with this because it's your observations of hype, but in a positive way. And it's like, you know, my parents used to say, well, we're not like the Joneses. You know, like we all have these generational cliches or, you know, we're not rich like the Rockefellers. Right. Why do people follow? And I'm going to encourage people. And I've just really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, I have too. And we will put all of your amazing links, the link to your book and social media below in the podcast episode. And you are definitely a heart-centered leader that I will keep (laughs) in touch with. And thank you for sharing your time and expertise today on Imperfect. And thank you. And that last compliment about observing really was, I I truly take that as a compliment. You know, I mean, that really was my goal. It wasn't to push an agenda. It was to really figure out what was the truth and report on it as I saw it and help people engineer that if, if there is a truth there. And so thank you for, you know, noticing that. Well, it's, it's one meaningful conversation at a time. And again, it was my pleasure to have you. It was my pleasure to be here. Thanks again. You've been listening to the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time and we'll see you again.